The Deal of the Week podcast is brought to you by ExxonMobil. Energy lives here. Welcome to Deal of the Week, Bloomberg's new podcast on the world of mergers and acquisitions. I'm your host, Alex Sherman, a M&A reporter at Bloomberg. Each week on this podcast, you can expect a quick wrap of the Deal News of the Week uh, with a Bloomberg colleague of mine, followed by a discussion with someone who lives and breathes mergers and acquisitions. This week, we're joined by Sullivan and Cromwell M&A partner Frank Aquila, who's been deep in boardrooms since the 1980s. He's been part of some of the biggest deals ever, including Anheuser-Busch InBev's $107 billion deal for SAB Miller, which was formally agreed to just earlier this month. He'll also talk to us about how the M&A world has changed from the 1980s to today and why companies are a lot smarter now than they were then. But first, let's get to a weekly segment we're calling What's the Big Deal?, where we hit on the week's most interesting M&A news. Joining us again, Bloomberg's M&A managing editor, Jeff McCracken, to talk about the year's largest deal and what's going to be a record year already for overall deal volume completed earlier this week. Allergan technically buying Pfizer in a reverse merger, a deal worth about $160 billion in equity value. It is the biggest healthcare deal ever. Jeff, welcome back. Hello, Alex. It was uh, pretty easy to figure out what the deal was to talk about this week, given given the pfizer elegant conversation and the, and the fact they got the deal done here on Monday, uh, which I think we're all thankful for because that means now we don't have to sweat it and chase it during the, the Thanksgiving week. So another pharma deal. We've seen more than $400 billion in pharma transactions this year. Uh, but this one, as I mentioned, is by far the biggest, in fact, the biggest ever. Uh, and it seems to me this one was done primarily for tax reasons. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. Yes, we have Botox and Viagra coming together. We have Botox, which is Allergan's main product or perhaps their key product. And we have Pfizer, which has Viagra and you know hundreds of other drugs. But really, this was a deal about taxes and basically cutting taxes. Pfizer had estimated it paid 25 to 26%. Its tax rate was somewhere in that range. Now its tax range is going to fall to 17 or 18%. So that's a pretty substantial trim. And that brings in a lot more money now to the company once they get the deal closed. I think starting in 2017, you know, the deal will close sometime next year, starting in 2017, 2018, they're going to have a lot more money coming in. And because they're going to be a foreign company, they won't pay taxes on their foreign profits now, or they won't have to pay the, the higher rates on their foreign profits. Pfizer is attempting what people that are familiar with the world know as an inversion, where uh, they move their domicile out of the United States uh, and Allergan already based out of the United States. Uh, so it's th- that's why Allergan is the acquirer, per se, here. Uh, and then they'll take up their domicile. Where is, where is Allergan technically domiciled, Jeff? They're going to be in Ireland. In, in, in Ireland, right, where, where taxes are quite low. Exactly. Yeah, their operational headquarters will remain in, in New York, technically. That's where the CEO will sit. But Ireland is where they're going to be uh, domiciled. And, as and so my question is, we're seeing this at the same time. The U.S. Treasury just announced new guidelines on trying to crack down on these types of deals because they don't want U.S. tax dollars going away and going down. So why are we seeing this now? And, and does Pfizer just 
flat out not care about what the government wants? I think that is a safe assumption. I, I wouldn't say they don't care. You know, they would be concerned. Let's say we had a Democratic House and a Democratic Senate, then some legislation with a Democratic, um, uh, you know, a president, then some legislation could be created that would make uh, make it almost impossible or make it much more difficult to do an inversion. But Pfizer has been clear for more than a year, probably almost two years, that they want to do an inversion. They cannot find another way to lower their tax rate this much. They tried to do a deal with AstraZeneca, and that couldn't get done. They later had conversations with GlaxoSmithKline, which didn't didn't happen. And last year, late in the fall, they had a conversation with a company called Actavis, which is the predecessor to Allergan, because later when the deal with Actavis or the attempt attempted deal with Actavis didn't get done, Actavis bought Allergan, and the CEO, Brent Saunders, became the, the CEO of those two combined companies, and the Actavis name went away, and, and Allergan is, is what lived on. So Pfizer has been very clear they're going to do this deal, and no one should be surprised that this is what, what they came to, to, to get done. Is there any chance that regulators can strike down this deal sort of on inversion grounds? Do they even have grounds to strike down the deal? I don't think I don't think there's a chance. I'm not. I, I will, will make. I want to make you know clear up front. I'm not the expert on what DC can and can't do. But unless you feel like the Republicans somehow get angry or decide they want to do something about this, Treasury on its own cannot. And they've been very clear. They've said we cannot do more without legislation. And there is no no chance. I have zero faith that the Republicans in the Senate and the Republicans in the House are ever going to move on inversions. Now they would support some sort of comprehensive tax reform. But that isn't something that's not something that ever gets done in weeks or months. It takes years and years. So it's going to push on past the 2016 presidential elections before you see anything get done at all in this area. It it seems to me we saw a lot of this like 18 months ago, and then it sort of went away. And now this one coming back, a huge inversion. Does that mean we're going to see more of this again? Or is this sort of a one-off? A key thing that happened a year ago was the Treasury tweaked the rules to make it harder. And one deal, one very high-profile deal, a company called AbbVie was buying a company called Shire, and that was an inversion. Um, And it fell apart. It fell apart in a pretty high-profile way, and it cost a lot of... um, you know, the investors and the arbitrage community, a lot of money because they had been banking on the deal and, and, and it fell apart. Uh, and AbbVie, you know, which I think matters, uh, they're an R&D pharmaceutical company based in the Chicago area. So there was a thought that there was a lot of um, pressure put on them either by the White House or by senators in Illinois or what have you to, to not do the deal. So that seemed to throw cold water on a lot of the inversion efforts that were going on. There have been, however, other deals that have continued to go on inversion deals, they're just always lower lower scale or lower key transactions. So it's a four billion dollar company doing a two billion dollar acquisition, not a not a you know two hundred billion dollar company doing a one hundred billion dollar acquisition. And this, you know, with Pfizer, I, I think everything's back on the table. One thing that I found interesting about this deal is that it seems like there's limited industrial logic. Uh, in fact, I read an interesting article on Bloomberg Gadfly, which is. Bloomberg's new editorial platform that I also suggest you check out online that suggests the point that doing this deal was actually perhaps to put these two companies together only to split them in a couple years once the deal is completed with one company focused on new drugs and one that sort of milks the existing drugs. Exactly. So Pfizer has been clear that they will eventually sell or spin out their generics business. Now, Allergan has already done that. They have a deal in place with another company called Teva, where they are selling their generics business to Teva for $40 billion. Uh, that was announced, I think, July, August timeframe. 
and that deal will close early next year. That's the kind of transaction or the kind of situation Pfizer was looking at before they bought Allergan. So the thought is these two companies come together in 2016, sometime in either late 2017 or 2018, the generics piece or the generics business that's still left inside the new Pfizer could then also be sold or spun out. And then that would bring in a lot, you know, however many multiple billions of dollars into Pfizer that they could use for more acquisitions or more R&D or, or whatever they want to do. Very interesting. Uh, thanks, Jeff. Uh, now let's go to our interview with Frank Aquila, uh, recorded a few days ago uh, when Jeff was in the studio. You're listening to the Deal of the Week podcast brought to you by ExxonMobil. Energy lives here. Our second Deal of the Week guest, Frank, I know that's an honor you'll treasure for the rest of your life. Thank you for joining us. Thanks a lot, Alex. Uh, I also want to give you a shout out before we really get going here. Frank recently awarded Law 360's annual MVP award, beating out dozens, if not hundreds, of other lawyers for the honor, along with a handful of other law partners. So, Frank, first, congratulations on that. That's not as prestigious as being our second guest, but still prestigious. So, always good to get an MVP take, award, I'll right? I'll take whatever uh, I can get, as long as you don't call me late for dinner. There you go. So, to get this started, this is a record setting deal year on pace for the highest deal volume in a year ever. Uh, the last time we saw a volume like this was 2007. We all know what happened in 2008. Is that a false parallel, or does this type of volume worry you a little bit? I think it's a false parallel. First of all, when you look at what market values are today as compared to 2005, 6, 7, market caps for equivalent companies are way up. Earnings are way up. So uh, it really is an equivalent Secondly, I think the types of deals you're seeing are very different. These are strategic deals by and large. They're not leverage deals. They're, they're certainly uh, solid deals. Most transactions we're seeing announced, you see the uh, buyer going up as well as the seller stock going up. So all, all are very good trends. Are people, I mean, it's is an obvious or an easy bias to say people are smarter about deals than they were in, in 07, um, so I guess I'll, I'll carry that bias. Do you feel like these deals are smarter than they were in 07 or safer than they were in 07, Frank? I've been doing deals for a long time, as you know, really since the uh, early uh, 80s, and sort of the M&A boom, the modern M&A boom started at the very end of the 70s, and there were lots of deals done in the 80s that you know, were sort of what we'd call Saturday night specials. And uh, they came together extraordinarily quickly. People really didn't do due diligence. And uh, there were some bad deals done as a result of that. As a consequence, people became much more professional about it. And uh, every era of deal making, you see people becoming more and more sophisticated. That doesn't mean every deal that's being done now is a perfect deal and will work out, but history has shown that as we go on, the percentage of really good deals goes higher from deal boom to deal boom. And and I think particularly uh, this time around, given how cautious companies have been coming out of the financial crisis, uh, I think uh, we're seeing... Uh, a very high percentage of very good deals. So let's get into your history a little bit, Frank. How did you get started as an M&A lawyer? Is this something you wanted to do as a young lad growing up in New York, correct? I, I grew up, uh, I was born on this island, grew up in New York City. All my education was in 
the city of New York. And uh, when I started Sullivan and Cromwell, I wanted to be a securities lawyer. And one of the things I didn't want to be was an M&A lawyer, sort of like uh, the opening scene of The Graduate, where you know, people are talking about plastics. You know, M&A was the hot thing right then. Uh, I, I wanted to uh, avoid it, but uh, wound up doing an M&A deal uh, the first, uh, oh, it was probably six weeks at the firm, and really fell in love with it. And uh, didn't really decide to become an M&A lawyer, but uh, after about two years at the firm, I looked up and I realized... Uh, you know, That's gee, what you'd become. Uh-huh. Yeah, I'm an M&A lawyer. So your, your, your story is like the alternative version of The Graduate, where where Dustin Hoffman actually gets into plastics. Exactly, right. exactly. Why didn't you want it? What was the reason, it, you know, as you look back now, 30 years or so ago, why didn't you want to be uh, an M&A lawyer at the time? Didn't you realize that was the, the hot, hot, sexy place? Yeah, I, I guess I thought at the time, you know, this is going to be a fad for a year or two, and I was looking for something that uh, was a little bit longer term, Uh one of my professors in law school uh, had been an SEC commissioner, and there was a much longer storied history to uh, the securities practice. And Sullivan and Cromwell certainly uh, was always one of the preeminent securities law firms. So uh, you know, I just viewed it as being uh, you know, a practice that was more stable. And uh, as I found out, I was at the uh, very beginning of what would be uh, a, a long um, and rising wave of M&A activity. So, you know, it's ups and downs, but certainly been uh, a continuous cycle. Let's give the audience a, a little uh, uh, indication, I'm sure listeners are interested, in how exactly what you do has changed from the 80s to now. In other words, what were you spending your time doing, by and large, when you first started, and how has that changed today? Sure. I think in the uh, early to mid-80s, the bankers and the CEOs would sort of huddle, make a deal, and uh, they'd go off to uh, 21 or whatever was the uh, uh, fancy restaurant drinking hole of the day, and the lawyers would sort of rush in and paper up the deal and launch the tender offer. And, uh, you know, that was uh, what we would do. Uh, Today, of course, the lawyers are much more front and center, and uh, in in many cases, we are playing large roles in, in, in a number of ways. One is doing the due diligence, guiding the company and their board. I spent a lot of time in the boardroom now advising boards and senior management on what are the issues, what are the risks that they should be thinking about, whether they be compliance problems, potential liabilities, things of that sort. So we're doing that. Uh, We're getting much more involved in negotiation, in part because lawyers like me have been at the negotiating table for 30-plus years. And in many cases, uh, we've been uh, negotiating these deals longer than anyone else. So our role in deals is much more central than uh, the lawyers' roles were back in the early 80s. Hey, Frank, what are your, when you look back on the last 30 years, are there two or three deals that jump out of you as, as your favorite ones where you were really happy you were able to get it done or they worked out so well or the personalities that were involved or just how good the deal was? I'm curious, are there a couple you can single out that uh, the audience would, would remember or recognize? Sure. I mean, a, a few that I think uh, have uh, you know marked my career 
the combination of uh, Grand Met and uh, uh, Guinness to create Diageo, the world's largest uh, spirits company, uh, InBev's uh, unsolicited bid for Anheuser-Busch, which uh, was going on in the midst of the uh, financial crisis, right? Financial crisis in the midst of a presidential election, you know, a non-U.S. company making an unsolicited bid for an American icon. Uh, being able to pull that off, finance it under that environment, certainly was uh, an amazing uh, feat. And then I think uh, this, the deal we did earlier this year, uh, I represented Kraft in the combination with Heinz, which was a deal that was done very, very quickly. And I suspect that when people look back and think about you know, the changes in five years that you'll see in consumer packaged goods and in the supermarket, they'll point back to the combination of Kraft and Heinz and say that was the beginning of the consolidation in that sector and the way in which uh, that sector operates going forward. So those would be three. I mean, I've had a lot of deals that I would say have changed uh, sectors and have been important transactions, but certainly those three are quite significant. So I want to ask you the flip side of that. Is there one or two deals that you've been involved with which just haven't worked out for whatever reason? Well, I think one deal that uh, didn't happen, uh, we, we got it signed up, but uh, we're never able to get uh, regulatory approval is uh, I represented Echo Store now, uh, uh, Dish Network in its agreement with General Motors to purchase, use electronics, which is direct TV. This is 2002-ish, right? And the the argument there was that uh, the technologies were converging and that there's plenty of competition. And unfortunately, the way the regulators looked at it, and this was back in 2000, 2001, was there were two satellite television companies and you can't go from two to one. And a few years later, when the same argument was made with respect to the combination of XM Sirius, they understood that and they allowed that combination. And so that was a combination that uh, I think would have uh, made a uh, very uh, good competitor to the cable companies, probably would have led to earlier consolidation among the cable companies, and we ultimately weren't able to uh, get that one done. I suspect, as I say, if we had done it a few years later, that uh, the government would have uh, recognized it. And it was a you know, good ending uh, because uh, our client AT&T wound up uh, acquiring DirecTV this year. So, uh, as they say, all's well and ends well. But that's a deal that I've always thought uh, should have happened, and unfortunately uh, the regulators didn't allow it to uh, happen for probably you know, because they look backwards as opposed to forwards on some of these things. Although I, I would say, Frank, that both DirecTV and Dish is a space I know pretty well uh, turned out to be pretty good, profitable companies alone. Uh, I mean, DirecTV particularly went through a few years of boom time with NFL Sunday Ticket. Sirius XM, those companies were bankrupt companies. I mean, they came together to avoid bankruptcy. So I, no, I, I, that's true. That's true. But remember, the, uh, you know, the, the, the 
the satellite TV companies were, were not as uh, robust and profitable back, back in then. the early 80s right. as they, or the early 2000s as, as they are today. I was just pushing back because it turns out since they didn't allow the deal, actually the companies succeeded and competed against on price against each other. I'm, I'm wondering, I guess, what your logic is that the consumers would have been better off if that had come together. Yeah, because I think uh, what what uh, you know would have happened is that uh, they would have had more funds because you, you, there's a lot of duplication, hundreds of millions of dollars a year of duplication between them in terms of license fees and things like that that they could have put into innovation and things we're seeing today would have happened you know ten years ago and uh, that would have pushed uh, cable to innovate and so I think consumers would have been better off because of that. Hey Frank. Kind of a, a question out of left field. Do you prefer to be on the Do you prefer to be on the sell side or the buy side? I tend to prefer the buy side. Uh, Is that easier? Know. Does it pay better? I'm I'm just curious why. Yeah, it, it probably pays better to be on the sell side if you're selling a public company. But uh, I, honestly, uh, I, I always like to be part of building and and part of a, a strategic move. And uh, clearly your motivation and what you're trying to do and the constituencies you're trying to protect and the way you look at things are different, whether you're on the buy or the sell side. Uh, I think one thing, uh, and particularly at my stage of my career and my role, uh, what I'm always looking at first and foremost is to make sure that the board and senior management are protected, that uh, we know that litigation is a fact of life in the United States. Anybody can sue anyone about anything. And so there's always going to be litigation. There's litigation in every deal. The key, though, is to make sure that you can defend that litigation, that you can uh, get that litigation dismissed relatively uh, quickly. And so, you know, whether I'm on the buy side or the sell side, uh, I'm always looking at that as uh, a, a primary responsibility. Frank, you are a prolific tweeter, and it's rare among M&A advisors, especially lawyers. Does that bring any benefits to your clients, or has it ever been an issue for a client you've been representing? It, it, it's never created an issue, and, and I don't think it brings a benefit or not. I, I started on Twitter because I found that following uh, the right people and the right news sources, I learned about things uh, 10 or 15 or 20 minutes uh, before I would get an email from whomever uh, saying, you know, this deal happened or this deal's rumored or whatever. So uh, I started following it as a good uh, news source and and just started uh, tweeting. The reason it's never an issue with respect to clients is I, I have a very easy rule. If I have to think twice about putting up the tweet, I don't tweet it. And, uh, you know, my view is uh, I wouldn't uh, tweet something that I wouldn't uh, uh, say uh, in, in a conversation or uh, a speech or an article or whatever. By the way, that's uh, at F Aquila for those listening that want to follow you on Twitter. I have one final question for you, Frank. Uh, have you ever worked on a deal that, that almost got there, pretty close to the finish line, didn't quite get there? that the press never picked up on, that years later now, you can tell us about? You know, I, I have, uh, unfortunately, a few of those deals where uh, we got very, very close uh, and uh, 
it, it never got picked up on. Uh, obviously, for client confidentiality, while I, you know, people say to me, oh, you know, you should write a book. Uh, I wish I could about some of those uh, situations. But since those companies are still out there as public companies, uh, I can't talk about them. But uh, maybe someday if they get uh, taken over or go private or whatever, maybe someday I can talk about uh, those situations. Because in many cases, those deals that come so close are in so many ways uh, so interesting. And some of those near-miss deals you look back on and sometimes you say, thank God we didn't get that done. And in other cases you say, imagine if we had uh, been able to get that one done. Frank, appreciate you joining us. Frank Aquila, Sullivan and Cromwell, M&A partner. And uh, maybe one day we'll be able to get you to spill the beans on some of those deals. Uh, just We'll just need to see. You started off by talking about all these beer deals you, you've done. So maybe if we just get a few beers in you, then. <laughs> that, that may work. We'll work our way through ABI and SAB. And uh, just that alone will get us quite drunk, I'm sure. <laughs> that for sure. So that's it for episode two of Deal of the Week. Hope you enjoyed it. You can expect more Bloomberg reporters and M&A f- professionals such as Frank who are doing deals real time. Uh, as you heard about, who can reflect on decades of experience as we continue with the podcast. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal and Bloomberg.com, as well as iTunes, Google Play, or whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. And also take a minute to rate and review the show while you're there. Also follow me on Twitter at Sherman4949 and Jeff at J.C. McCracken. We'll see you here next week. You've been listening to the Deal of the Week podcast brought to you by ExxonMobil. Energy lives here.